Book 4 Elric looked back at the roaring, crumbling, tumbling, flame-spewing ruins of Imrir and drove his sweating oarsmen faster. The ship, sail still unfurled, bucked as a contrary current of wind caught it, and Elric was forced to cling to the ship's side lest he be tossed overboard. He looked back at Imrir and felt a tightness in his throat as he realised that he was truly rootless now. A renegade and a woman slayer, though involuntarily the latter. He had lost the only woman he had loved in his blind lust for revenge. Now it was finished. Everything was finished. He could envisage no future, for his future had been bound up with his past, and now effectively that past was flaming in ruins behind him. Dry sobs eddied in his chest, and he gripped the ship's rail yet more firmly. His mind reluctantly brooded on Cimmeril. He had laid her corpse upon a couch and had set fire to the tower. Then he had gone back to find the Reavers successful, straggling back to their ships loaded with loot and girl slaves, jubilantly firing the tall and beautiful buildings as they went. He had caused to be destroyed the last tangible sign that the grandiose, magnificent, bright empire had ever existed. He felt that most of himself was gone with it. Elric looked back at Imrir and suddenly a greater sadness overwhelmed him as a tower, as delicate and as beautiful as fine lace, cracked and toppled with flames leaping about it. He had shattered the last great monument to the earlier race, his own race. Men might have learned again one day to build strong, slender towers like those of Imrir, but now the knowledge was dying with the thundering chaos of the fall of the dreaming city and the fast-diminishing race of Malnibane. But what of the Dragon Masters? Neither they nor their golden ships had met the attacking reavers. Only their foot soldiers had been there to defend the city. Had they hidden their ships in some secret waterway and fled inland when the reavers overran the city? They had put up too short a fight to be truly beaten. It had been far too easy. Now that the ships were retreating, were they planning some sudden retaliation? Elric felt that they might have such a plan, perhaps a plan concerning dragons. He shuddered. He had told the others nothing of the beasts which Maldomoneans had controlled for centuries. Even now someone might be unlocking the gates of the underground dragon caves. He turned his mind away from the unnerving prospect. As the fleet headed towards open sea, Oryx's eyes were still looking sadly towards Imrir, as he paid silent homage to the city of his forefathers and the dead Cimmeril. He felt hot bitterness sweep over him again, as the memory of her death upon his own sword point came sharply to him. He recalled her warning, when he had left her to go adventuring in the young kingdoms, that by putting Urkun on the ruby throne as regent, by relinquishing his power for a year, he doubled them both. He cursed himself. Then a muttering, like a roll of distant thunder, spread through the fleet, and he wheeled sharply, intent on discovering the cause of the consternation. Thirty golden-sailed Malnabonean battle barges had appeared on both sides of the harbour, issuing from two, two mouths of the maze. 
Ulrich realised that they must have been hidden in the other channels, waiting to attack the fleet when they returned, satiated and depleted. Great war galleys they were. The last ships of Malnibane and a secret of their building was unknown. They had a sense of age and slumbering. They had a sense of age and slumbering might about them as they rowed swiftly, each with four or five banks of great sweeping oars to encircle the raven ships. Auric's fleet seemed to shrink before his eyes until it seemed as though it were a bobbing collection of wood shavings against the towering splendour of the shimmering battle barges. They were well equipped and fresh for a fight, whereas the weary ravers were reavers were intensely battle-tired. There was only one way to save a small part of the fleet, Elric knew. He would have to conjure a witch-wind for sail-power. Most of the flagships were around him, and he now occupied that of Yaris, for the youth had got himself wildly drunk and had died by the knife of a Malnabonean slave wench. Next to the Elric's ship was Count Schmjorgens, and the stocky sea lord was frowning, knowing full well that he and his ships, for all their superior numbers, would not stand up to a sea fight. But the conjuring of winds was great enough to move many vessels was a dangerous thing, for it released colossal power and the elementals who controlled the winds were apt to turn upon the sorcerer himself if he was not careful. But it was the only chance. Otherwise the rams which sent ripples from the golden prows would smash the reaver ships to driftwood. Stealing himself, Elric began to speak the ancient and terrible, many-voweled names of the beings who existed in the air. Again, he could not risk the trance state, for he had to watch for signs of the elementals turning upon him. He called to them in a speech that was sometimes high like the cry of a gannet, sometimes rolling like the roar of a shore-bound surf, and the dim shapes of the powers of the wind began to flip before his blurred gaze. His heart throbbed horribly in his ribs, and his legs felt weak. He summoned all his strength and conjured a wind which shrieked wildly and chaotically about him rocking even though the huge Malnabonean ships back and forth. Then he directed the wind and sent it into the sails of some forty of the reaver ships. Many he could not save, for they lay even outside his own wide range. But forty of the craft escaped the smashing rams, and amidst the sound of howling wind and sundered timbers leapt on the waves, their masts creaking as the wind cracked into their sails. Oars were torn from the hands of the rowers, leaving a wake of broken wood on the white salt trail which boiled behind each of the reaver ships. Quite suddenly they were beyond the slowly closing circle of Malnabonean ships and careering madly across the open sea, while all the crews sensed a difference in the air and caught glimpses of strange, soft-shaped forms about them. There was a discomforting sense of evil about the beings which aided them, an awesome alienness. Schmjorgen waved to Elric and grinned thankfully. We're safe thanks to you, Elric, he yelled across the water. I knew you'd bring us luck. Elric ignored him. Now the dragon lords, vengeance bent, gave chase, almost as fast as the magicated reaver fleet with the golden barges of Imlia, and some reaver galleys whose masts cracked and split beneath the force of the wind driving them were caught. 
Ulrich saw mighty grappling hooks of dully gleaming metal swing out from the decks of the Amerillion galleys and thud with a moan of wrenched timber into those of the fleet which lay broken and powerless behind him. Fire leapt from catapults upon the Dragon Lord's ships and careered towards many a fleeing reaver craft. Searing, foul-stinking flame hissed like lava across the decks and ate into planks like vitriol into paper. Men shrieked, beating vainly at brightly burning clothes, some leaping into the water which would not extinguish the fire. Some sank beneath the sea, and it was possible to trace their descent as, flaming even below the surface, men and ships flooded to the bottom like blazing, tired moths. Reaver decks, untouched by fire, ran red with reaver blood as they engaged Imrudian warriors, swinging down great grappling ropes and dropping among the raiders, wielding great swords and battle axes and wreaking terrible havoc among the sea ravens. Imrudian arrows and Imrudian javelins swooped from the towering decks of Imrudian galleys and tore into the panicky men of the smaller ships. All this Elric saw as he and his vessels began slowly to overhaul the leading Imrerian ship, flag galley of Admiral Margum Colum, commander of the Malnabonean fleet. Now Elric spared a word for Count Schmjorgen. We've outrun them, he shouted above the howling wind to the next ship, where Schmjorgen stood staring wide-eyed at the sky. But keep your ships heading westwards or we're finished. But Schmjorgen did not reply. He still looked skyward and there was a horror in his eyes. In the eyes of a man who, before this, had never known the quivering bite of fear. Uneasily, Elric let his own eyes follow the gaze of Schmjorgen. And then he saw them. They were dragons, without doubt. The great reptiles were some miles away, but Elric knew the stamp of these huge flying beasts. The average wingspan of these near-extinct monsters was some thirty feet across, their snake-like bodies beginning in a narrow-snouted head and terminating in a dreadful whip of a tail, were forty feet long, and although they did not breathe the legendary fire and smoke, Elric knew that their venom was combustible and could set fire to wood or fabric on contact. Emeridian warriors rode the dragon's backs. Armed with long, spear-like goads, they blew strangely shaped horns which sang out curious notes over the turbulent sea and calm blue sky. Nearing the Golden Fleet, now half a league away, the leading dragon sailed down and circled towards the huge golden flag galley, its wings making a sound like the crack of lightning as they beat through the air. The grey-green scaled monster hovered over the golden ship as it heaved in the white-foamed turbulent sea. Framed against the cloudless sky, the dragon was in sharp perspective, and it was possible for Elric to get a clear view of it. The goad which the dragon master waved to Admiral Margum Colum was a long, slim spear upon which the strange pennant of black and yellow zigzag lines was, even at this distance, noticeable. Elric recognised the insignia on the pennant. Divim Tvar, friend of Elric's youth, lord of the dragon caves, was leading the charges to claim vengeance for Imrir the Beautiful. Elric howled across the water to Schmjorgen, 
These are your main danger now. Do what you can to stave them off. There was a rattle of iron as the men prepared near hopelessly to repel the new menace. Which wind would give little advantage over the fast-flying dragons. Now Divim Tvar had evidently conferred with Margum Colum and his goad lashed out at the dragon throat. The huge reptile jerked upwards and began to gain altitude. Eleven other dragons were behind it, joining it now. With seeming slowness, the dragons began to beat relentlessly towards the Reaver fleet as the crewmen prayed to their own gods for a miracle. They were doomed. There was no escaping the fact. Every Reaver ship was doomed and the raid had been fruitless. Ara could see the despair in the faces of the men as the masts of the Reaver ships continued to bend under the strain of the shrieking witchwind. They could do nothing now but die. Auric fought to rid his mind of the swelling uncertainty which filled it. He drew his sword and felt the pulsating evil power which lurked in rune-carved Stormbringer. But he hated that power now, for it had caused him to kill the only human he had cherished. He realised how much of his strength he owed to the black iron sword of his father's and how weak he might be without it. He was an albino, and that meant that he lacked the vitality of a normal human being. Savagely, futilely, as the mist in his mind was replaced by red fear, he cursed the pretensions of revenge he had held, cursed the day when he had agreed to lead the raid of Imbria, and most of all he bitterly vilified dead Erkkun and his twisted envy, which had been the cause of the whole doom-ridden course of events. It was too late for curses of any kind. The loud slapping of beating dragon wings filled the air, and the monsters loomed over the fleeing reaver craft. He had to make some kind of decision. Though he had no love for life, he refused to die by the hands of his own people. When he died, he promised himself it would be by his own hand. He made his decision, hating himself. He called off the witch wind as the dragon venom seared down and struck the last ship in line. He put all his powers into sending a stronger wind into the sails of his own boat, while his bewildered comrades in the suddenly becalmed ships called over the water, inquiring desperately the reason for his act. Auric's ship was moving fast now, and might just escape the dragons. He hoped so. He deserted the man who had trusted him, Count Schmjorgen, and watched his venom poured from the sky and engulfed him in blazing green and scarlet flame. Auric fled keeping his mind from thoughts of the future, and sobbed aloud, the proud prince of ruins, and he cursed the malevolent gods for the black day they idly, for their amusement, they had spawned men. Behind him, the last reaver ships flared into sudden appalling brightness, and, although half thankful that they had escaped the fate of their comrades, the crew looked at Alric accusingly. He sobbed on, not heeding them, Great griefs wrecking his soul. A night later, off the coast of an island called Pantang, when the ship was safe from the dreadful recriminations of the dragon masters and their beasts, Elric stood brooding in the stern while the men eyed him with fear and hatred, muttering of betrayal and heartless cowardice. They appeared to have forgotten their own fear and subsequent safety. Elric brooded, and he held the black rune sword in his two hands. 
Stormbringer was more than an ordinary battle blade, this he had known for years. But now he realised that it was possessed of more sentience than he had imagined. The frightful thing had used its wielder and had made Elric destroy Cimmeril. Yet he was horribly dependent upon it. He realised this with soul-rending certainty. But he feared and resented the sword's power, hated it bitterly for the chaos it had wrought in his brain and spirit. In an agony of uncertainty, he held the blade in his hands and forced himself to weigh the factors involved. Without the sinister sword, he would lose pride, perhaps even life, but he might know the soothing tranquility of pure rest. With it, he would have power and strength, but the sword would guide him into a doom-wracked future. He would save a power, but never peace. He drew a great sobbing breath, and blind misgiving influencing him threw the sword into the moon-drenched sea. Incredibly, it did not sink. It did not even float on the water. It fell point forwards into the sea and stuck there, quivering as if it were embedded in timber. It remained throbbing in the water, six inches of its blade immersed, and began to give off a weird devil scream, a howl of horrible malevolence. With a choking curse, Elric stretched out his slim, whitely gleaming hand, trying to recover the sentient Hellblade. He stretched further, leaning far out over the rail. He could not grasp it. It lay some feet from him still. Gasping, a sickening sense of defeat overwhelmed him. He dropped over the side and plunged into the bone-chilling water, striking out with strained, grotesque strokes towards the hovering sword. He was beaten. The sword had won. He reached it and put his fingers around the hilt. At once it settled in his hand and Elric felt strength seep slowly back into his aching body. Then he realised that he and the sword were interdependent, for though he needed the blade, Stormbringer, parasitic, required a user. Without a man to wield it, the blade was also powerless. We must be bound to one another then, Elric murmured despairingly bound by hell-forged chains and fate-haunted circumstance. Well then, let it be thus so, and men will have cause to tremble and flee when they hear the names of Elric of Malnibane and Stormbringer, his sword. We are two of a kind, produced by an age which has deserted us. Let us give this age cause to hate us. Strong again, Elric sheathed Stormbringer and the sword settled against his side. Then, with powerful strokes, he began to swim towards the island, while the men he left on the ship breathed with relief and speculated whether he would live or perish in the bleak waters of that strange and nameless sea. <laughs>